I noticed on the screen there it said Ezekiel 8 to 24, which would <laughs> be up here for a very long time. Anyway, we were reading all of Ezekiel chapter 8 and verses 15 to 27 from Ezekiel chapter 24. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire and from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and I saw a doorway there. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of Israel and um, Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there mourning the god Tamas. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. Then he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things that they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Chapter 24, verses 15 to 27. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, with one blow, I'm about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your moustache and beard or eat the customary food of mourners. So I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening my wife died. The next morning I did 
as I had been commanded. Then the people asked me, Why won't you tell us what these things have to do with us? Why are you acting like this? So I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me. Say to the people of Israel, This is what the sovereign Lord says, I am about to desecrate my sanctuary, the stronghold in which you take pride, the delight of your eyes, the object of your affection. The sons and daughters you left behind will fall by the sword, and you will do as I have done. You will not cover your moustache and beard or eat the customary food of mourners. You will keep your turbans on your heads and your sandals on your feet. You will not mourn or weep, but will waste away because of your sins and groan among yourselves. Ezekiel will be a sign to you. You will do just as he has done. When this happens, you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. And you, son of man, on the day I take away their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes, their heart's desire, and their sons and daughters as well, on that day a fugitive will come to tell you the news. At that time your mouth will be opened. You will speak with him, and he will no longer be silent. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. Thank you, Michael. Uh, hello, good morning, everyone. So today we are covering Ezekiel chapters 8 to 24, right? Strap yourselves in. You're probably wondering what level of insanity prompts someone to choose to preach on 16 chapters of Ezekiel in one go. All right, now believe it or not, I was trying to be kind uh, because what it means is we'll cover all of the chapters of God's judgment on Jerusalem in one go instead of stretching it out over perhaps two months. And also if I preached it then, Cam or Mark wouldn't have to. And uh, anyway, we need to pray that I'd be able to do it in reasonable time. I think we will. Um, it's also reflecting um, trust in the Bible, in the Holy Spirit, who inspires the Word of God and has recorded and preserved this for us for our edification. So uh, this is not a, uh, a section that you'd normally choose necessarily, but it's here and it's really relationally rich. It's really important, in fact, and therefore we need to pray. Will you pray with me? Our loving Father in heaven, uh, we know that the events that's covered here are so, so significant for you and for your people, and they're recorded because they're significant for us as part of our spiritual story, our spiritual history. So we pray, Heavenly Father, help us to get deep into this chapter, maybe an untold chapter in our understanding, this chapter in our personal spiritual story, so that we would understand you and we'd understand what relationship with you is meant to look like. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you can think of a day in your history when your world fell apart. One of my earliest memories as a child is of the day my mum drove off and left us. I was probably five years old. Uh, my sister was six, uh, my brothers five and three. And the one constant in our life when dad was at work 
was mum. She was always, always around. And of course, you know, we pressed the boundaries, we played up, we had our nice days, not many of those, and our rebellious days, lots of those. Um, but the, the safe thing was she was always around. If we played up, if we pushed the barrow too much, if we tested the boundaries too much, yes, we'd be in trouble, but we were safe because mum was always there. She was the stayer. And I remember this particular day, day being a day of more mass rebellion than normal uh, with my sisters and brothers. <clears throat> and I remember actually thinking, boy, we're really pushing it a bit much today with mum. <clears throat> Until the moment I realised we'd gone too far. And instead of unleashing on us and doing something violent, which is probably what we deserved, mum, I remember, remember this in slow motion, reached out, took the car keys, took her handbag and walked out the door. And we were all stunned. And I tried to comfort myself pretending, well, she's just gone to sit in the car for a breather. Except then the engine started and she drove off. And she left. And I remember looking at my sister who burst into tears. And of course, all our naughty behavior just stopped at that moment. And in a brave attempt to minimise what had just happened, I, just, I said, don't worry, she'll come back. And then I remember waiting and waiting and waiting. They were the longest minutes of my life. During that time, our world collapsed. Because if there was one thing we could always count on, the one thing we never questioned, mum was always there but now we were confronted with a terrifying prospect that she wasn't. So the questions rose, had we pushed her too far? What, what did it mean for mum and we kids? I mean, would she, she still want to be our mum even if she did come back and, or did she just want out? That is the issue confronting us in Ezekiel chapters eight to 24. It's very easy for, for us to do what I said as a five-year-old and say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. God's soft. He's just threatening. He'll be back. But I want us to realise he really did leave. God left his people and it changed things between them forever. This hits Ezekiel between the eyes in the visions he's had, the first in chapters 1 to 4 and now another in chapters 8 to 11, in both of these, Ezekiel sees heavenly winged creatures supporting a heavenly throne on which Ezekiel sees the likeness of the glory of God. His eyes are open. And, but if that was not terrifying enough, what's more disturbing is that the throne he sees is not above the ark in the temple in Jerusalem where it's meant to be. God's throne has wheels and it has moved. The creatures have wings. Ezekiel was seeing God's glory not where it should be in Jerusalem, but 1,400 miles away in Babylon, in Iraq. Meaning for the people of Jerusalem that the unthinkable had happened. The Lord had left Jerusalem and left his temple. Now why? Why did God leave and what does it mean? Our chapters today explain this. In the second vision, 
God takes Ezekiel back to the temple in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's over in Iraq, in Babylon. He's in exile. He's sitting in a refugee camp. And he has this out-of-body experience where somehow God lifts him up and takes him back to Jerusalem and shows Ezekiel what's going on. God provides a commentary and suddenly Ezekiel sees through God's eyes and we see because Ezekiel sees why the unthinkable happens, why God in his glory is leaving the temple. Now when my mum left, 20 minutes later she came back. It was a long 20 minutes. But this is far more serious. If we were to fast forward to the end of our section, which we've just read in chapter 24, it's four years later. It's the 15th of January, 588 BC. This is the date that history records as Judgment Day for the city of Jerusalem and their temple. God the Spirit wants us to know this very dark chapter in our story, and he's preserved this vision, so we will see what Ezekiel saw, so that we will understand that, yes, even though we're under a new covenant, the Lord is the same God. Sin cannot be trivialized. It has to be understood relationally. And God, our Lord, is not one to be taken for granted. Okay. So, God, why did you leave us? Two reasons. Two reasons. First, it's personal. Second, he's jealous for us. First of all, it's personal. In Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel has real-time viewing of what's currently happening in the temple at that moment when the exiles are over here in Babylon. And what he sees when he's transported there is idolatry. In the temple, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord. The Lord is there in the temple where he should be. But at the same time, there is idolatry. He sees an idol which provokes jealousy. It's there in the temple, the temple of God. This is like a married person coming home and finding a replacement in the family home and the rest of the family carrying on as if everything's normal. What world have we entered into that this should happen? It's outrageous. God says, do you see the utterly detestable things that they are doing? things that will drive me far from this place. I'll show you even more. Ezekiel is instructed to dig through the wall of the temple into a room, a secret room inside the wall. And inside, what does he see? He sees, and this is really happening, 70 elders of Israel, and they're offering sacrifices, each having incense, offering sacrifices to drawings on the wall of 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 detestable things, beetles, snakes, frogs, detestable things for Jews. They're doing it. And they're doing it in secret. They're doing it in the dark. They're Israel's elders. They are worshipping things Egyptians worshipped. What's happening? Well, I take it that Israel's elders, fearing the Babylonian menace, they are not calling out to the Lord as they should do. Instead, they are calling upon the gods of the nearest rival superpower, They're saying to themselves, the Lord does not see us, and yet he does see them. And the Lord does not care, and yet he does care, because back in the law of God, which he gave them, God had said, if if you're ever being punished for me by turning against me in your hearts, if you humble yourselves and call out to me, I will hear and answer your prayers. I will remember my covenant. And yet 
Even though he said this, Israel's elders are not doing that. They are rejecting him. They are turning to Egypt's gods. God says, do you see this? I'll show you even more detestable things. At the north gate of the temple, there are women. They're mourning for Tammuz, a Babylonian god, engaging in a cult of the dead as part of seasonal worship when the leaves die before the new growth appears. And Tammuz is meant to be this dead god. Um, Again, this is a rejection of the living God, as if the Lord God isn't the architect and enabler of life. God says, do you see this? I'll show you things that are even more detestable. Well, what's more detestable? Well, then he's taken to the inner court of the temple. As close as you can get to the throne room of God in the most holy place. And what's there? Here are Israelite men facing away from the inner court, and they are bowing down to the sun, which is coming up in the east. Now, you have to understand this is a personal insult to God because in bowing down to the sun in the east, they are literally turning away from the most holy place in the temple above which God would dwell. They are, in bowing down to the sun, what part of their body is being raised up to God? Right, their backsides. In worshipping the sun, they are mooning God. In his temple. Have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they're doing here? He says, must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? I want you to see there's a connection between pagan idolatry and violence and bloodshed. The most obvious connection is, of course, because in bowing down to foreign gods and offering sacrifices, you offered the sacrifice of the most precious thing you had, which was your children, believe it or not. So idolatry involved child sacrifice, something detestable and abhorrent to God. And yet also in getting rid of God, you get rid of his laws where he preserves the sanctity of human life and then in throwing out that of course you open up the gates for bloodshed and violence and it was all through Jerusalem. God says therefore I will deal with them in my anger and then in a chilling preview of what was to come Ezekiel sees the glory of God begin to get up and move from the temple and then the horror of this becomes clear because in the vision, Ezekiel sees six city guards with weapons who are told to go throughout the city, killing without mercy or compassion men and women, old and young, without any pity. But they don't kill everyone. A man in linen there is with a clipboard, and he's a, he's a civil administrator. He's told to go, first go through the city and put a mark on the forehead of everyone who in their hearts has grieved and lamented for the sin of Jerusalem. Well, he does this, they are spared. God spares a remnant, those who grieves, grieve in their hearts over Jerusalem's sin. And then at the end of chapter 10, to his horror, Ezekiel sees the glory of God depart the temple completely. The reason God left the temple was because of idolatry, which for him was personal. Now, is the Lord being too harsh 
Isn't this unloving for a loving God? Well, Ezekiel helps us understand this sin of idolatry is personal because it's more than just breaking a law, right? If we reduce sin to this, we will misunderstand. Sin has to be understood relationally, and that's the value of this part of the Bible. Two key chapters show us this, chapters 16 and 23, two really helpful chapters which explain idolatry has to be understood not as something trivial, but in terms of adultery. Chapter 16 describes Israel's sin in relational terms. It says, go way back. Imagine Israel as an unwanted baby. She's left out to die by pagan parents. She's in her blood, kicking in the field. The Lord comes along and he sees this unwanted, desperate, almost dead baby, and he says to her, live. And she lives and she grows. And when she's old enough for love, this is some years later, the Lord doesn't violate her. He treats her properly. He covers her nakedness and then enters into a marriage relationship with her, formalized in the covenant at Mount Sinai in the time of Moses when promises are exchanged. And the Lord bathes her and he clothes her and he adorns her and she becomes famous throughout the nations for her beauty. But instead of saving herself for the Lord, she trusts in her beauty and she, she gives herself to prostitution with the nations, nations around. She uses what the Lord's given her, clothing, jewellery, food. She uses these things in worship of other gods. She even slaughters her children. She sacrifices them to idols. In all of this, she completely forgets her origins, the days of her youth, and how the Lord had saved her. God says, woe to you. You gave yourself to the Egyptians. Even the Philistines were shocked at how lewd was your behavior. And then still not satisfied, you go and offer yourself to the Assyrians. And then you play harlot with the Babylonians. He says, you're worse than a prostitute who gives herself for money, not lust. But you actually lusted after more and more lovers and instead of them paying you you paid for them to come you see how wrong it is for us just to think of sin just as breaking a law <laughs> like a, a, a traffic infringement and then thinking God overreacts if he gets angry how wrong we are when we trivialize idolatry loving something else more than God. Money, the Olympics, our comfort. How wrong we are when we think lightly, oh, well, that's okay. God will forgive. That's his job. It's personal to God. Idolatry is adultery. In chapter 23, God extends the metaphor by describing Israel and Judah as two adulterous sisters. The older sister, Israel, first giving herself to depravity to the Assyrians, and so therefore God, no surprise, gives her exactly what she wants. He gives her to the Assyrians, and she is no more. And then Judah and Jerusalem becoming even more depraved and becoming even more and more promiscuous. promiscuous. Now, I mean, you wouldn't commit adultery, would you? Would you? No, you wouldn't. I mean, in your worst possible moment, you might think about it, but you wouldn't do it, would you? And yet when 
We let go of God as our first love and we live for whatever captivates our hearts without thanks to God, without acknowledgement of him, without remembering our past and what he's done for us. This is exactly what we do in spiritual terms. It's so easy to minimalise sin, to to trivialise what we set our hearts on. These chapters say there's nothing trivial about turning your back on God. God, why did you leave? Because idolatry is personal. It's adultery. And God says to Jerusalem, because you've done this, I will bring on you the blood vengeance of my wrath and my jealous anger. I'll gather... Round you all your lovers who will strip you, who will tear down your lofty shrines, who will take your fine jewellery, who will leave you naked and bare, and they will put a stop to your prostitution, and you will no longer pay for your lovers, and then my wrath against you will subside, and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm, and then I will be no longer angry. Why did God leave? Number one, it's personal. Secondly, because he's jealous. He's jealous for us. He's jealous to change us. Israel's story is our family story, actually. And you'll know that as we've been going through this, you'll detect the compromises of your own heart that have been exposed and the reality that we need a new heart. How can we be changed? This is the value, this is what Ezekiel talks about in the whole book. How can we be changed? Well, in chapter 11, Ezekiel's vision finishes with God promising that after his anger, God will bring his people back from exile and that they will then remove all the vile images and detestable idols of Jerusalem. God says, because I will give them an undivided heart. Wouldn't that be lovely to have an undivided heart? Right? Do you want that? I hope you do. God says, I will put a new spirit in them. He says he will remove their heart of stone And he will give them a heart of flesh so that then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then they will be my people and I will be their God. It's through the process of judging his people that God brings a change of heart. So if this is what God's going to do, um, that means, of course, doesn't it? Change is his responsibility, right? Is it? That's what the exiled elders sitting in captivity in Babylon with Ezekiel were thinking. It comes out at the start of chapter 18. In the proverb, they were saying to one another, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's a way of saying, look, we're not really responsible for what we're suffering here. Either we're being punished for something our kids have done, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, or we're being punished for something our fathers have done. The children's teeth are set on edge. Either way, we're not responsible. It's actually a fatalistic way of thinking, which we can slip into. I can't be blamed for being the way I am. If my heart is divided, if my love of God is flawed, that's God's fault, really, not mine. But now in chapter 18, God says, it's not true, you're not responsible and you are unable to change things for yourself. He says, you're not going to be punished for either your parents' sin or for your children's sin. The soul who sins is the soul who will die. Each of us is responsible for ourselves. 
And God says, tells us this because he's jealous for us to change. He's promised to put a new spirit in us. He's promised to change our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And so now he says to each of us personally, well, get a new heart. Yes, I've promised to change your hearts, but it's up to you now to get a new heart. He said, imagine there's a righteous man who has a violent and immoral son. He says, that son won't live. His blood will be on his own head. His father's righteousness will not count for him. But now imagine that that violent son has himself a son, a son who is righteous. That son shall live. He will not die for his father's sin. His father will die for his own sin. The soul who sins is the soul who shall die. The son doesn't share in the guilt of his father, nor does the father share in the guilt of his son. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them. The wickedness of the wicked will be credited against them. Each of us is responsible. This is the opposite of fatalism. It's saying you can change your standing before God. In chapter 18, God says, suppose a wicked person turns from their sin and becomes righteous. That person will live. None of their former offenses will be remembered. Isn't that grace. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. Am I not pleased when they turn to me and live? Yes. And then God says, well, suppose a righteous person turns from their righteousness towards wickedness. Will that person live? No. None of their former righteousness will be remembered. So we have to keep going, right? We might say, well, that's not fair. That's not obeying the rules of karma in the universe, right? God says, no, it's you who are not fair in resisting repentance when I'm offering you the chance. So repent. God says, turn away from all your, your offenses. Rid yourselves of them. Get a new heart. Get a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Because I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. He says, repent. And live. God left Israel because their sin was not trivial. It was personal to him. God left Israel because he's jealous, jealous to change us, jealous to get, for us to get a new heart. But what will it take? We've seen God's glory leave the temple. We've heard God recount a history of spiritual adultery. Is that enough to change us? We've heard of God threatening his judgment against Jerusalem, which we know came. Will that be enough to change the hearts of Ezekiel's contemporaries who were with him in exile? Well, actually, there's a step we need to take. We need to grieve and mourn. In the second reading, the, the final and hardest chapter in our passage for Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, that he is about to take away from him the delight of his eyes, his wife. And then Ezekiel is told, but you cannot mourn and you cannot weep because I need you to be a sign for the people of Israel, for those in exile with you. And the next day, Ezekiel's wife, the, the delight of his eyes, she dies. And Ezekiel doesn't cover his head in mourning and he doesn't weep. And that's bizarre, right? 
and it would have been bizarre to everyone there. And the elders would have said, why aren't you mourning? You two were so obviously in love. She was the delight of your eyes. Why are you carrying on as if nothing's happened? And then comes the answer. Because on that day, the 15th of January, 588 BC, God tells Ezekiel, this is the day when judgment has fallen on Jerusalem. The delight of the eyes of the elders of Israel. That's the day when Babylonian siege works are brought against her walls, when the battering rams of Nebuchadnezzar's army begin their destructive work. It's the end. But here's the weird thing that's totally bizarre. Israel's elders will not mourn. And that's totally inappropriate. Do you remember back in chapter 9 in the vision of Jerusalem, it was those who mourned for their sin, those who lamented the idolatry, that they were the ones who, was, who would be spared God's final judgment. Well, guess what? This is the message. That's the first step in getting a new heart. And we can't bypass it. We have to grieve and we have to mourn. Sin cannot be trivialized. Do it. You will not understand. You will not seek out. You will not get a new heart. You will not embrace the cross. God will mean nothing to you. Jesus will mean nothing to you as a savior. The spirit will not be at work in you. It begins right here. You've got to grieve and mourn. James says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter into mourning. Change your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and then guess what? He will lift you up. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. It's they who will be comforted. God says through Ezekiel, I take no pleasure, no pleasure whatsoever in the death of anyone. Turn and live. Get a new heart. Friends, the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates through a stony heart to divine soul and spirit and joint and marrow. He exposes us. He cuts us open. And he has exposed the idolatry and adultery of our hearts. Our sin cannot be laughed away. It cannot be blamed on fate. It cannot be minimized. It cannot be trivialized. Our sin is deeply offensive to God. It is personal to him. And God is jealous for us. He is jealous because he wants to give us a new heart. The first step is to grieve and mourn. And the next step is to take hold of Christ who stepped in and went through the judgment for you and for me. But the point is, when we come to the cross... How do we come? It is right to come with a sense of grief. That our sin cost our precious saviour his life. The most wonderful, glorious man who's ever lived. And he died. The first step to having a changed heart is to mourn. 
that that's what it cost. And that's a step we can't ignore. I'm going to ask the musos now to come up on the stage. Because when we come to God, and I'm going to invite us all to do it now, it would be lovely to be able to sing this. But we can sing in our hearts, right? But the invitation here is to come. To come to God by the blood.
Ezekiel chapter 18 says this, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Yahweh. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Yahweh. Repent and live. Please join with me as we pray this prayer of confession. Almighty God, you alone are creator, sustainer, and giver of life. You alone are God over all the earth. You alone deserve our worship and praise. You have exalted your son, Jesus Christ, as the rightful Lord of all and savior of the nations. Have mercy on us and forgive us all idolatry, worshiping pleasure and comfort above you, trusting in money, achievements and status for our security and looking elsewhere than to Christ for our identity. We repent and turn again to you. Have mercy on us. Renew us and change us with the power of your spirit. Then we may give ourselves to your service and worship you alone in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Also in Ezekiel 18. If a wicked person turns away from the wickedness that they have committed and does what is just and right, they will save their life. Because they consider all the offences they have committed and turn away from them, that person will surely live. They will not die. Julie's going to come up and continue to lead us in prayer.